You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes or so, we'll be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. I'm JR. I'm Dan from uh, New to Who. I'm David from Beyond the Sofa. And I'm Nathan from Flight Through Entirety. And you're all appearing from Down Under. <laughs> are you going to be making Australian jokes the whole time? Yeah. Well, actually, no, yeah. no, we're the ones on the... You're the one on the other side. Yeah. The well, that is true. Yes, that's we're absolutely right true. I, I'm the outsider on this call. That's terrible. <laughs> this is my call and I'm the outsider, is that what you're saying? <laughs> Three against one. On this episode, we are. I make no apologies for the fact that with Stephen Moffat stepping out of the showrunner role, there are probably going to be a handful of episodes over the next few months where we're going to discuss the legacy of Stephen Moffat. So on this episode of the podcast, I've assembled three Antipodeans to find out what they thought of Stephen Moffat. Um, before we go in, Daniel and Nathan, we've previously had people from your podcasts <laughs> on. In fact, Daniel, we had um, the other two guys from yours on yeah, just a few weeks ago Stephen talking about Cole. Knock Knock. <laughs> and you missed out. You were We were hoping you were going to be on that, but you weren't. I was at work or something. I can't remember. Something rubbish. Yeah. So we so had to get you back in now. <laughs> but David, Beyond the Sofa, that we've not had anybody on from Beyond the Sofa before. So before we go any further... Tell the listeners what Beyond the Sofa is and, you know, where they can find you, what you do, that kind of stuff. Oh, crikey, I hadn't prepared a list. Um, (laughs) Beyond the Sofa is basically two New Zealand podcasters. We're both in our 40s, like every other Doctor Who podcast, um, arguing about the first world issues. (laughs) (laughs) Arguing over the first world problems of being a Doctor Who fan. (laughs) Basically. Um... And, uh, yeah, we're a Doctor Who podcast. There's very little to actually differentiate <laughs> us, I suppose, other than our own idiosyncratic ways, which we can't, you know, self-analysis is difficult, so who knows. But we're findable on uh, WordPress, on Sofageddon, yeah. is our WordPress account, and we're on iTunes, uh, so you can track us down there. Sofa Geddon, what a brilliant! Sofa That's your Twitter Geddon. account as well, isn't it? It is, but neither myself or Peter actually maintain or oh, right. the Twitter account. We're on Facebook as well, but we're absolutely appalling at self-promotion, and we're really bad at, at uh, keeping up the tweets. So, oh well, um, if... here you are doing a bit of self-promotion now. Oh, well, you're well, you're promoting me. I'm, I'm, it's, it's, well, I'm not completely. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, but what I like, I tell you, okay then, what I like about Beyond the Sofa and New to Who and Flight Through Entirety, and that's why all three of you are assembled here now, is that you're quite insightful podcasts. I like podcasts where you're listening to the podcast, and I've said this before, and you're hearing somebody talking with a bit of insight about what you've been watching and maybe bringing up thoughts that you might not have had yourself. 
that's what I like when I listen to podcasts. And having said that, I expect we'll go through the next hour and a half and not do any of that now. <laughs> <laughs> Murphy's Law. Yes. Yeah, um, no, I've got nothing. <laughs> I'm an empty vessel myself, so we'll see. I'm only on my podcast for uh, for butt jokes and um, and laughing at the other two guys, what they say. That's pretty much it. Oh, well, if there's any of that this evening, yeah. I'm sure that'll that's, be absolutely That's a role right. I'm happy to fill. Let's do it. <laughs> um, before we talk about Stephen Moffat, though, there is something that's happened in the world of Doctor Who this week, or, you know, this week or so, the last 10 days, whatever it's been. I think it's been a week, actually. There's, well, we can't really let go by without comment. And that's the new version of Sharda, about oh, yeah. which news has emerged. Mm. So um, this is the fifteenth version of Sharder, I think. <laughs> like that. Is that right? <laughs> well, it has to be close. Mind you, people have been bringing this up and saying, "Why are they doing Sharder? There are already so many versions of Sharder." And I was thinking, oh, yeah, power. Of, well, I was thinking, Power of the Daleks. You could buy the novel. You could listen to the soundtrack. You could buy the soundtrack in a box set. You could listen to an audio reading of the novel. Probably you could buy the MP3 of Power of the Daleks. You could go online and find about six different reconstructions, <laughs> including an animated one. It was one nice of... to see. It was nice to see it properly animated. I mean, yeah. we watched. We'd watched the reconstructions, and they're you know tolerable. And it was certainly clear from the reconstructions. Mm what a brilliant story Power of the Daleks was. But actually, you know, getting to see... I mean, you know, it clearly wasn't what the original show actually mm. looked like. Yeah, yeah. But it really let that story shine and I think opened mm. it up to a whole new audience who would never in their, you know, never in a million years go and hunt for a loose cannon reconstruction. Mm. And the it's, it's actually a very good animation too. I recently watched the animated bits for Reign of Terror and mm. it, they don't feel like a 60s TV show they seem to jump about and the cuts are all a bit the direction yeah. of them is very different to the existing episodes whereas while it's never going to be a shot for shot of what Power of the Daleks was it does mm. look and have the sensibilities of a 60s production and, and they get better every time were, I, I feel like uh, the new ones get better each time remember we watched the Invasion one and then a few later, uh, they I mean, they get better every time just from from the new ones. Just little bits of yeah. extra detail, to, bit more effort. Like is, is it is it Cosgrove Hall that does the invasion animations? Because I think that they're probably that they've never been equaled. I mean, yeah, you know, Power Cosgrove of the Daleks Hall has did invasion, yeah, mm. yeah. but it's Planet I mean, Fifty Five, I think, for the, all the others or something, some other outfit. Yeah, Cosgrove I mean, I think Hall, they're watchable. Yeah. They're a bit rough, I think. They are. Well, Cosgrove Hall one, the invasion had a lot of extra money because originally that was supposed to be for the BBC website. And so they right. plugged a load of money into mm. it that was from the website and they've not had that money for any of the it feels subsequent like animations. The, it feels like it's yeah. just one of the lot. Yeah, that's pretty yeah. yeah. So well, all the... I mean, I'm terribly grateful to have anything. You know, like, mm, I, yeah. I, you know, I wouldn't mm. diss the other animations and I'm astonished that they were able to do it given that the... The runs of the classic DVDs are, what, in the tens of thousands, probably? You know, we're yeah. very, very lucky that they were able to do it at all. Um, but, you know, look, I think Power of the Daleks looks great. The characters have difficulty sort of walking convincingly. <laughs> and there are, a few, <laughs> there are a few sort of hero shots with cranes that there was no way that the original production had. Yeah. But yes. it's, 
It's such a great story. It's such a truly superb story. Mm. And it's in the middle of this giant run of non-existent Troutons. So, you know, I'm hugely, hugely grateful for that. And I think there are other gaps that they could plug. I mean, if I want to see Sharda, and I'm not that convinced that Sharda's all that good. (laughs) Um, Well, that's, I I think part of the reason Sharda's been picked is because it's, the accessibility of a Tom Baker story and a Douglas Adams story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've got to be honest with you. I've got a, I've got a confession to make. I've, ne- I've, I've never actually watched or read Sharda because I've, I've never really wanted to sort of have it be crap. You know what I mean? I've read, I have read the Douglas Adams, the book that he, the part of it was in uh, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. So I've yeah. got mm. bits of it from that. But I mean, I, I'm kind of looking forward to this because I'm going to be kind of watching it clean. I'm kind of excited to see it. I, spent, I think actually, the novelization that yeah. novelization by um, Gareth Roberts is actually really pretty good. I think, but I think, like Daniel, probably a lot of people, despite all the previous versions of Jada, probably a lot of people will actually come to this clean, especially in America, because I suspect. Mm. I don't know, but I suspect a lot of BBC America money is probably <laughs> going into the production of this, because last yeah, and, time. Well, last time with Power, apparently BBC Worldwide did it in black and white. And BBC America said to them, well, hang on, if we can have a colour version, we could broadcast it. <laughs> well, the colour version was never finished in time. But presumably, if you put the BBC Worldwide and the BBC America money that made the coloured version together, you'd actually get a, a version of Sharda that was probably a lot cheaper to make because they weren't sort of working at odds with each other. So... Even And even if, you know, you are somebody who does know the story of Sharda, without looking out for the Ian Levine version, somewhere dodgy online probably, this will be as close as you'll get to what the original would have been like, closer than the book or closer than the Paul McGann version. Well, I I wonder if... I mean, the, the thing with the book is Douglas Adams would never write the book that was the story of the screen he'd always embellish it and polish it and change it and what have you so the book is free range to change mm. and i wonder if they're going to do it I, i'm assuming it's going to be fully animated and they're not going to rotoscope or rely on any of the existing footage they might have well, we it as a know, DVD yeah. bonus or something but it's an opportunity to actually say let's let's john kirby jack kirby the, this and have visuals we'd never have because Let's not remake it as a reconstruction. Let's make it as a new production with the original script, but throw what we can in it to make it actually a story with modern production sensibilities. Because we can. There's, there's, you're not tied to trying to recreate an existing episode. You can actually take the story and run with it while not changing the, the, the heart of Douglas Adams's work. But if you're going to get people to re-record things, do the lot. I think there's a limit to that, though, because the whole thing's going to be, you know, two and a half hours long. It's not going to be like a modern modern production. It is going to be sort of very slow by modern standards and probably pretty hard going. The old third third episode filler. Yeah, but (laughs) you could... Well, well, okay, let's just put, put it out there. How exact are they going to make it are they going to they could trim it they could edit it they could do all sorts of things it does you know they could abandon the episodic format 
they're remaking it. It's not if you if it's not a recon but a remake. You're dead right. They could, it could do be it. Tightened but up. I'd think they'd probably be too afraid to to mess with it too much because of the backlash, right? Yeah, I think the fans would want the six episode story as it was, so I suspect they'll do a pretty straight reading of the scripts. But they can still well, do that, think... but not be limited by the production. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that. I think if you're going to do that, you really should just consider animating the uh, lost episodes of Galaxy 4, frankly. <laughs> that would make well, me hopefully... much happier. Yeah. Hopefully, because it's got Tom Baker and because it's got Douglas Adams and because you've got the weight of BBC America and American fandom who are into Douglas Adams and Tom Baker behind it, if it's hugely successful, then it's more likely we will see a remake of Galaxy 4 on the back of it. All right, yeah. I'm behind it, Ben. Whatever. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm just as long playing as get Galaxy 4. here. <laughs> I'm a bit ashamed I've never, I've never got to Shadow. It's just one of those things I've like, oh, I'll leave it for later. I'll leave it for when they, you know, when they find it in, in the back of my mind, which they probably never, you know, they never will. No, well, they, they didn't finish it. So what you've mm. got, in fact, is just some studio blocks that are all in sort of yeah. a couple of sets. Yeah. A- anything really, really exciting they never got around to shooting. Yeah. But what you do have is... Tom Baker, where is he at the Museum of the Moving Image or something? He's narrating it in person, only he's obviously madder than he was in 1979. <laughs> so it's actually really funny. Oh, like it is really funny, but it is it is a, it's a bit of a trial. And the punting, the Just, punting bit from five yeah. dollars. Yeah, see, all shot? of the all of the. St- um, location stuff was shot mm. um, so there's a fair amount of film but there's not that much location and there's just a couple of sets mm. uh, so a couple of studio blocks but th- the last few studio blocks and they were the exciting ones I think um, <laughs> yeah. where all of the, the big climax happens and stuff they just never got made and the trouble is of course like so many stories made at the time most of the location stuff went in the first episode and yeah. so you've got this you've got this set where the first episode they they did it in episodes. The first episode's twenty five minutes long. By the time you get to episode five, there's about five minutes and most of that is Tom Baker saying, Yes, and then we uh, blew up the monsters and this kind of stuff and you don't get to see any of it and that's it. Tom Baker just says, We saved the day and off we went in the TARDIS. Yeah, it's a it's it's a very disjointed affair, that version. Where you just kind of... It's nice that you've got most of the first episode there because first episodes are always the best episodes, yeah, really, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, I always like the first episode. I like the, when they set it up. People are walking around having a joke. Everyone's friends. Mm. Nothing horrible has happened to anyone yet. Yeah, no. But it's like the setup for something that never really happens. <laughs> so, a fun day so finally, yeah. yeah. So un- unless you have seen the Ian Levine version, finally we'll get a version where Tom Baker's still around to save the day instead of Paul McGann. <laughs> Not that there was anything... I don't mind the McGann version. In my head, that was actually the Sharda story. Um, <clears throat> well, it was I, in the end, yeah. Mm, mm. But I mean, it was it was conceived for Tom, and the story suits Tom more. I oh, think. I, th- than... I, th- I think you're right, but I think when they they made an effort to allow McGann to McGannize Tom's yeah. stuff without changing things too much, you know, his reading was a very different reading of the same what? thing. 
Yeah. I couldn't make it all the way through because I thought his reading of Tom's jokes was really terrible. <laughs> and things that would have been really funny had Tom said them ended up just dropping like a stone oh. when McGann said them. Oh, I mean, he's but, fabulous, obviously, but, you know. But, but, well, as, as you alluded to before, even when Tom has a go at them in the, the early 90s, they can be a bit, <laughs> a bit odd. Depends on Todd's mood on the day, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. I'm wondering whether this new version, they'll stick rigidly to the script, or because Tom Baker's in the studio, they'll let him go off and do his own thing a little bit, as he would have done <laughs> had they recorded it in 1979. Maybe he's so... mellowed in his old age. Maybe <clears throat> it takes direction. Uh, no. no, no. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> no, but there is a chance to sort of finally get Tom Baker doing something approximating what he might have done it, in 1979 as opposed to just a bunch of actors with a script reading them to a microphone. I don't know. We'll <laughs> have to wait and see. Mm. Nobody, yeah, nobody really knows what's happening. But as we speak, Daniel Hill has literally just tweeted out a sort of 12-second video of him in a studio with a green screen. Mm, now, whether that's for... Wrote, well, as Nathan said earlier, one of the things about Power of the Daleks was the movement, the walking wasn't especially good. So maybe what they're doing is getting some of the original actors and maybe some stand-ins or whatever <laughs> to do the walking bits for the new version so they can rotoscope them in and, and get it rather better. With a screen screen yeah, out of the show the animators. They could show the animators what people walking looks like. Yeah. It <laughs> seems to have been a stage that they skipped in Power of the Daleks, I think. The, the only thing with that, though, is it's you know, August now and it's meant to be out in December. November, yeah. November. So surely, I'm I'm wondering if the green screens for uh, you know a uh, uh, commentary special edition featurette, something else because they should be damn close to actually finishing. They should oh. they shouldn't be rotoscoping now. I would have thought it's only a month or so. I know. I I thought the same thing, but it's only a month or so since Daniel Hill tweeted out about doing his lines for it. So it's it's really hard to say. But he did say he did say it was due in November, so we'll just have to wait and see. I mean, the turnaround for Powell was remarkably quick. Yeah, I can remember because we were we were talking that about June, July, and it was out in November, December. Yeah, and it had only I think they'd only started work on it, and around about April. So, well, it's but, that kind of animation, suppose, isn't it? It's not exactly cell frame animation. It's like they they make a bunch of bits true. and then they animate the bits together, don't they? That that's quite true. Yes, and I suppose one of the big things is building the backgrounds. So if you you can, I suppose technically the animators, you know, the artists can be building the backgrounds before they even come into the studio to record their lines. So we don't know how long they've been working on this, but but presumably it's a little bit longer than we think at the moment. Mm. We'll just have to wait and see. Should we talk Stephen Moffat? Sure. Yes. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> You'd rather talk about Shada. <laughs> well, let's talk about Stephen Moffat beginning as a showrunner, and we'll work our way through to to series ten. But when when it was announced that Stephen Moffat was going to be the showrunner was about the time that Silence in the Library was being broadcast. But did all three of you, the three stories he'd done by that point, The Empty Child, The Girl in the Fireplace and Blink, had all three of you enjoyed those stories? And when they announced Stephen Moffat, was that good news at the time? 
Nathan. Yes. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, I sorry. would say yes. <laughs> I would say yes. You know, they're not stories that I go back to and revisit a great deal, um, but I do think that they're all incredibly well done. And in fact, my favourite of them is... I think my favourite Moffat story in the RTD era would be Silence in the Library, that two-parter. Um, yeah. And I just think he's incredibly clever and he is able, I think, to, uh, you know, do the emotional thing that the, the new series does. You know, there are really affecting moments, I think, uh, in all of his stories. And I think, you know, for instance, Girl in the Fireplace, I think, is heartbreaking. And, you know, I should have seen the end coming, but I didn't. Yeah. Um, and I just think that's wonderful. I remember Silence of the Library has uh, had a commentary that was released at the time. Do you remember this? And... um the first episode was Russell, um, David Tennant, and and Stephen Moffat all talking about the fact that uh, Moffat had been given the gig, and yeah. it's really terribly funny. I have it on a disc somewhere, I think. David, what did you think? Did you think it was good news? Oh no, I definitely thought it was good news. Um, I would have thought Blink probably was my pick of his episodes at the time, and. Uh, though having said that, I must admit, I, my handle online had been the other Dave for many years, because everyone knows a Dave, and I was always the other one. Right, so when yeah. that character <laughs> popped up in Sinus of the Library, I was I was quietly um, <laughs> quietly sitting there going, "Hooray!" Um, but yeah, no, I definitely in the early days of the announcement, I, I think everyone was quietly rubbing their hands together because all the stories he'd done were different then. They, yeah. They weren't... In fact, they were They were very much in a different mould to any of the other stories that were done. They were... And they were... You, you almost got the impression that, that Stephen Moffat would hand his script in and 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 it would go, you, you, you find something to change in that, Russell. Find something to edit. <laughs> I think that is the on. case, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Moffat was one of the very few writers that Russell wouldn't heavily rewrite during mm. his era. And I think that's why those scripts stand out, because they're the mm. only ones that don't have Russell T. Davis's fingerprints all over yeah. them. Yeah. Daniel, did you well, think... Yeah, what, what did well, you think? Well, to be honest, I, it's hard to talk about this this period without sounding like an asshole, but sort of season two and three, <laughs> I started to... Well, I just started to check out in season two and three because I just got sick of all the... The of tenant just sort of over... It was just sort of felt like it was overacting and and yelling and, and everyone... It was quite... It just seemed, seemed quite silly, which is nothing wrong with silly Doctor Who. That's fine. But I just kind of checked out for a lot of it. I just kind of dipped in and out. I, li- I like Blink and a few of the other ones, but I just kind of, uh, I sort of dipped out for about a year or so. And I think Silence of the Library was the one that I just, uh, I was watching it. One of my friends was watching it. And I was like, Oh yeah, cool. I'll sit down and watch this. And it was just so, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. And I think it's the one that brought me back. And so I kind of watched from then on. And then when I, you know, when I found out he was going to run it, I was quite excited. And then, um, when it started, I was, I just think the 11th hour is one of my, uh, one of the 11th hour is one of my favorite, one of my favorite stories. It's just so, it's just so much fun. It's like a, a little mini reboot. Everything, it all, it looks so different from the, uh, from the previous seasons. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, just, just little things like, uh, before, you know, Tenant had a, a lot of good, steady, uh, BBC TV lighting and then it sort of got a bit more dramatic and, 
uh, everything, all the colors just looked great, and it just it was just wonderful. And uh, it was like a, a rebirth. And from so from then, pretty much from the eleventh hour on, I was rehooked. So I fell out for a bit, and that's what brought me back. So, was series five what anybody was expecting from Stephen Moffat? Because as soon as they say the name, and you think of Blink, and you think of the Empty Child, you get an idea in your head about the direction Doctor Who might go in. Is Series 5 what that direction was? Or was anybody kind of thinking, oh, this is not what I was expecting? Daniel, while we've got you there. Well, well, I was expecting it to be a bit more... Well, maybe the the Russell T. Davies stuff that every episode, every other episode seemed to be a gigantic world-destroying crisis and some deus ex machina at the end would come in and the Doctor would just save the day and it seemed like a huge fuss and then he's going to... You know what I mean? There were huge... Yeah. Huge stories, and then Moffat started to bring in these. There were smaller stories, you know, like like the eleventh hour, um, yes, and little things like the, that whole first season. I just wasn't expecting it. I loved it so much. Like I, uh, Amy's Choice, one of my favorite ones, with the you know Toby Jones as the Dream Lord, mm. making him choose between the frozen tigers oh, yeah. and the pregnant pregnant village, and then um, and the one with Vincent Van Gogh and, and the lodger. They were just they're not like. World-ending crises and catastrophes, and he doesn't have to save the planet from a thousand million flying Daleks. Um, they're just—they uh, were just good stories, and they're well written. I really enjoyed them. David, oh, go on, Nathan, you're about to speak. Go on. Yeah, I was actually surprised by how traditional that first season was, mm. and how it did follow very, very strictly the um, the the format that Russell had set up over four years. It is very, very much like an RTD season. Uh, with, you know, like a, a fairly small scale, although it is a world-threatening story, isn't it? Um, the 11th hour, the world is going to be destroyed yeah, if the Doctor yeah. doesn't uh, intervene. <laughs> um, but it is yeah, a well, small well, scale, you're right. like lighter, lighter story. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, but and by then, the end of the season, I'm oh, sorry, by the end of the season, you're actually going to blow up the universe. Right, right. Yeah, but you can't get a bigger bang than that. us a breath. He's in that season. It, it is a little bit RTD, but, I mean, it's very RTD, but he's given us a breath, you know, like, those last two seasons of RTD, I just felt I was exhausted. You know, I was just like exhausted from millions of Cybermen and Daleks fighting each other, and just you know, what I mean, every week it seemed like a new. These are smaller stories with a few fewer characters and a little bit of a breath. That's just how I felt, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, totally, it felt different. Mm. Uh, oh, yes, was, I think so too. Yeah, I mean, the, even the idea of an RTD arc is is you drop the name and. Repeatedly until you get to episode twelve, when you say, "And that's what this means." And then in, in episode thirteen, you and you go, "And we tied up the bow," you know, like Bad Wolf. Bad Wolf is meaningless. Yeah. The weeks of Bad Wolf, Bad Wolf, Bad Wolf. And then, what is it? Oh, it's the name of the station. It's like so you could come here. It's like oh, okay. Uh, so you, whereas with the Pandora opens in in season five. You, you, you do get this feeling of, of yeah, the, the, the groundwork is a bit different and when the Pandorica arrives, it's not it's not the name or a meme or a, a torture thing. It's actually an intrinsic thing that, that explains why we have all this these cracks falling back through the season. Mm. Um, but, so, yeah. but in fact, it is just a shape. You know, it was a word in the RTD era... Um, but it's just a shape that repeats and we don't really know what it is. Um, the difference is it becomes really important in that first two-parter, which is something that Russell hadn't done as much maybe in season three where 
Um, I'm going to keep calling it season three. Should I call it series three? I oh, like call it, it whatever you like. Everybody okay. knows what we're talking about. <laughs> um, and and in fact, you know, the the bad wolf thing falls a little bit flatter, is a little bit difficult to understand. But I have to say that I'm still not entirely sure where all those cracks came from, or who blew up the TARDIS. And he probably really only properly gets around to explaining that in time of the Doctor. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I I agree with that. And and at the, this point, I should pull out my my cards to put on the table, because I would, using modern political parlance, I'd classify myself as a moffo-sceptic mm-hmm. a bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and more increasingly over time. And I, I don't mean to be belligerent or nasty or saying I'm out to get him, but as, as time has gone on, I've, I've a lot of that, that positive assumption that we took at the start going, he's a really good writer, I've I've sort of gone. Yee, does that make him oh. an ongoing showrunner? Because I think as Moffat's seasons have gone on, the freshness has sort of waned a little. And that's not a, a complaint against him as a writer, but it's just the nature of Doctor Who. That in Doctor Who, every five, seven, eight, ten, whatever, every so often, the show needs to rejuvenate. I, I would definitely agree with, and, and maybe that's where you were coming from yeah. before with your comments about the end of Tenants Run and and just sort of falling out of love with it. And, mm. you, know, you need a change. I definitely agree with that. Like, uh, I really enjoyed Moffat for the first. I really love season five and and parts of six and seven. I love the Capaldi, but it does feel like when you, you can pick a Moffat now when you when it comes up, and, and it does feel like a good time. Like, it feels like a good time for him to go. It does need to a bit of a rejig. Yeah, so I've probably preempted yeah. the end of this conversation. I didn't. Yeah, know yeah. That. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. You've kind of got there a bit early. It's fine. Sorry. We'll go back to the middle. That's okay. Cool. Well, I say goodbye now, and then we can all go our separate ways. <laughs> no, no, but, but the thing is, part of that process is as you watch Moffat's arcs and stories, and, and I find it a lot with his time travel stuff, which I'm not going to go into because, you know, I don't, I'm not going to be that wind up monkey, hopefully. Um, but there is a point where you get to the end and you go, oh, that was re- that was you know visually that was great, and and he, he said it himself. He's writing for people who are watching fairly casually enough to keep up. Mm. But if you try and tie all the loose ends together at the end, as you said with the Big Bang, well, well oh, um, so who was the silence? And that comes around mm-hmm. later, and that comes, mm-hmm. and it, it takes a very long time to actually get to the conclusion that. When you get to it, may not always tie back up with the front, and sometimes negates the front. And well, I think well, I do always feel like a bit of a party pooper because the the cracks, the crack in the wall. I like the crack in the wall, but the and then the silence and the Pandorica. When they start talking about those things at the end of each episode, I kind of check out a little bit because I, I I like that modern Doctor Who's got uh, story arcs, like unlike most of most of classic. I like the idea of the story arc, and I like it most of the time. But to be honest, like with the the Pandorica and the cracks in the wall, but and the silence. I, I, don't, I never really, I never really understood how it all worked because I kind of just checked out. I, I sort of I prefer to judge it on a on the individual stories and how good they are. And yeah, the arcs don't mean too much to me. That's personal. Yeah. I think the, the other th- the other thing is when you do get that revelation at the end that oh, the silence they're actually a confessional booth from from the Catholic Church of the future. It's been so important. It was so important two or three years ago, and it's dealt with in a line. Yeah. And it just sort but of I think that's okay. Mm. 
I actually genuinely think that that's okay because I think that mysteries are much more fun than their solutions. Yeah, yeah. And Moffat knows that. <laughs> and he, in his later seasons, you know, in the last, uh, in the last, uh, well, in in this last season, you know, the mystery is who's in the vault. And, you know, guess what? It's Missy and we all knew that. <laughs> um, but it's hard to know that, it's hard to imagine that there would be another answer to that that would be in any way satisfying. And the same in season eight, you know, who is Missy? Well, mm. is there a possible answer to that which is satisfying in any way at all uh, that isn't the answer that we were given? Mm. And the same with River Song. River Song turns out to be, you know, <laughs> someone the Doctor loved, the Doctor's wife. You know, yeah. mm. it, there's no actual answer to that mystery that would be satisfying emotionally in any way. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it's Marga oh, I, back I, for revenge. I mean, what you know, like, what else could it possibly be? And that's okay. I think that's good. Sure. The mystery is really fun, and the resolution isn't a giant letdown. It's not, it is really fun. I, it's not my, it's not really my thing. It's not what I watch the show for. I, I do, I don't mind the story acts. I'm glad they're there. They're just not really my, I'm just not really, yeah. You're right about, like, what, what possible answer could there be that would be satisfying. I mean, you know, you're right. And the sci-fi is Rodan. I... Missy is Rodan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Or Susan. What's that going to mean to sort of modern viewers who've never heard yeah. of Susan? I think you can introduce Susan as a character and say this is the Doctor's granddaughter and everybody immediately says, granddaughter, I understand that relationship, but she's not going to be the solution to a mystery. You either introduce her as a character, as the granddaughter in her own right, or you don't. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I, again, the mileage may vary on how, how you view the resolutions to the mysteries, but as as the seasons go on, I found that my buy into the mystery and the solution diminished, not because of uh, Moffat's writing in itself, but because thematically there always was one. And uh, I don't know, uh, I'm probably running to the end of the conversation and I don't mean to to break the format. I do apologize. (laughs) You are, there's so many, there's so many great stories in his, in his reign in those, over those um, six seasons. Uh, mm. Yeah, it, yeah. You can watch it for different things, but yeah, exactly. Yes, yes. Oh yeah, this is and this is what I kind of liked about series six is that the Stephen Moffat episodes formed one story, and that was five episodes, and the other eight episodes were, you know, apart from maybe you'd get Madame Kaverian's face popping up for about three seconds. <laughs> but apart from that, the other eight episodes were almost entirely separate. So I don't know. I just thought Series 6 was, here, if you like the arc, here's a few episodes for you. And if you like the standalones, here's a few episodes for you. But Series 6... Go it on. was a really audacious break from mm. the RTD format as well, like yeah. front-loading it with a massive, incredible-looking two-parter yeah. that was mm. really creepy, that played to Moffat's strengths in, like, a a really good way. Um, you know, we'd had... And, and the thing that he's done to the Doctor's life as well, where he inserts, you know, a couple hundred years where we don't see him yes. and pick his life up. Yeah. After that, I think that's amazingly audacious. You know, the Doctor was 903 years or something for the entire RTD run. But, yeah. uh, but Moffat 
makes it bigger and makes it more epic and introduces aspects of the Doctor's life that we don't understand and don't know about and also give him a story. He's not just sort of bouncing around the universe, you know, saving planets mostly. He has a more complex, more sort of textured story and all of that stuff that he does with you know, by inserting an extra Doctor in there where we didn't expect it. And, and you know, even at the beginning of Season 10, he's been uh, on Earth for sort of 70 years or something by the time mm. that we pick him up. And that's something that the show was always able to do, but that, that it never thought to do before. I, I, yeah. can't, I, think... I can't believe they never thought of that before because I, I can't believe I never thought of it before because it so adds that such a huge extra dimension. Yeah, and even little things like, the fact that he could physically age in between his um, generations, like you see Matt Smith get old, I never even, I never, I never even thought of that before. And then you give him all this, these gaps of time in between stories where any could, anything could have happened. You know, it's just, it's great. It's a brilliant mechanic, and I'm so glad they brought it in. I can't believe we didn't think of it before. <laughs> I mean, well, at the end, I think by the on. end, Matt Smith has been the Doctor for longer than yeah. all of the other Doctors combined. combined. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, he's, you were saying before, he's, he's 900 in RTD's run and he's nearly 2,000, I think, at the start of season 10. Mm. Yeah. I think there's a quote mm. in there giving that. So, you know, he's lived twice his life. Since, as Matt um, Smith covered in latex, as, well, well, <laughs> with a, no, with a wig. again, as Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi, because <laughs> there's some gaps there that that you know, who knows how long some of those gaps are as well. Yeah, but yeah. but but it might not be quite that Matt Smith is all the others added together, but he was certainly there for several hundred years. Oh yes, no, yes. he spent a long time on Christmas, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and a it's a great. There is a great season with all the, with the astronaut stuff and the um. And, but there, yeah, and there's those great. There's which is what's that really brilliant one? The Doctor's Wife, the one where the um, yeah, it's Doctor's Wife. I yeah. just, I, it's, it's just me. I just love that one. I, I really, really loved it. It made, made me laugh. Like uh, it was, it was fast paced. It was funny. The actress who played um, who played the Tardis was amazing. Uh, is it Saran Jones? Saran Jones. Mm, that's yeah, right. She's yeah, so great. And a little Michael Sheen vocal cameo. It was just a great story. I'm just uh, throwing in my favorites. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, that's no, okay. No, no, Go no, for it, yeah. <laughs> but, again, Neil, it's a Neil Gaiman... I'm playing devil's oh. advocate here, and I'm not trying oh. to... Throw, that's a Neil Gaiman it story. Is. And, <laughs> and, and I mean, the one I would pick from that, 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 that season is The Girl Who Waited. That's yeah. a heartbreaking story. Well, just on the subject of Neil Gaiman, we ought to refer to Wikipedia, which reveals that actually Stephen Moffat wrote that episode as much as Neil Gaiman did. Oh, I'm so relieved. Oh, I'm so ashamed that my favourite episode from that season is Neil Gaiman. I'm ter- oh, so ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, it might explain that the quality drop by the time we get to um, Nightmare in Silver. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. But anyway, you were about to say about the girl who waited because I think that's a great, great episode. That's the one where Amy becomes a samurai on a space station. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And again, you're talking about how um, yeah, for for the Doctor to spend long periods of time away, and, and it has been done before. And I think the BBC books and the Crystal Bucephalus, he goes and becomes a chef to open a restaurant so someone would turn up in 50 years so he could steal a key or something something like that. But for the girl who waited, you have that, but you have it happening to one of the companions. Yeah. And that, for me, has a lot more emotional punch because the Doctor 
being a time lord, being a time traveller, could theoretically swan off and save half the universe and turn back up and go, well, you don't know what I do in my sleep, you know. Well, you don't know what I do while you're sleeping, I should say. And, um, which is a quote from somewhere. But the girl who waited, it has we the thought... same punch. Sorry? Yeah. Sorry, yeah, no, go on, carry on, sorry. No, I'm, I'm probably, be- I'm drifting, as Nebulous would say. But the girl who waited, and you see it later on, um, especially in season 10 with um, Bill, in World Enough and Time, and to a lesser extent, the pyramid at the end of the world. You know, there, there is th- this this consequence of being left behind, and it's heartbreaking, because the companions like us wholly trust the Doctor, and to be left hanging for in, in terminal periods of time. Well, we but get... Yeah, it... Go on, sorry, go on. No, 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 please, carry on. Well, I was only going to say, we get, during Russell T. Davis we get a series that is about the relationship between the Doctor and the Companion much more so than it ever was in the classic series. So Russell T. Davis has introduced this idea that the overarching story is about the relationship between the Companion and the Doctor, but still the series is about something external. So the story in the series is about the Daleks and the Bad Wolf. And then the story in series two is about, you know, these these Cybermen coming through the void and this parallel universe thing that's going on. What Stephen Moffat does is he innovates that slightly further by making the arc story about the relationship between the Doctor and the Companion. So, for example, to give the really obvious example in series nine, the arc story is about the Doctor and Clara. And actually, if you look at the final episode in that series, Hell Bent, there is no external threat whatsoever. The, the entire episode just is about the Doctor and Clara. And this is what Stephen Moffat has increasingly done. He's told stories that aren't about how the Doctor and the Companion um, react to an external threat, but he's told stories about that relationship. That's something I I would suspect that if you actually got down to what divides people on Stephen Moffat, it's a about an inherent belief that Doctor Who should be about either A, the characters in the series, or B, something else that you see through the eyes of the characters in that series. And I think what some people may not like is the fact that there are episodes and arc stories and series that are actually entirely about the regular characters, which I think is something that it's perfectly fine to do in other series. And I think the question of whether it's fine to do that in Doctor Who is what divides people over Stephen Moffat. Right, I'll open that up to you guys, and I guess da- especially David, what do you what do you think? Is that right? Um, I don't know. Um, I, I, I would say that the, now you've made the point, you look at it and you go, well, you know, all of season five and six is about the Doctor and his relationship with Amy. And the Even TARDIS Amy is the yeah, and the TARDIS and is the arc story, the cracks. Yeah, yeah, but but it's 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 the you know it all boils down to the, the in the Big Bang the Doctor sitting and talking to the child he met thirteen episodes ago and getting her to reboot the universe, and then the next season's all about his relationship with that child's daughter. Yeah, and the wedding of River Song, and then the next season we've got. Uh, the start of Clara coming in with her arc, which is explicitly written that Clara is affecting the Doctor's past. 
or the the doctors the reverberations of what's going to happen with Clara is happening retroactively all the way back to Asylum of the Daleks and by the time you get to the the anniversary special right back to the start of Hartnell leaving Gallifrey and then you've got the relationship with Bill um where it's a bit more blurry, but you have this duty of care and this relationship of taking you and teaching you. And the so arc in that, a... and the arc in that year again is about a regular character. It's about Missy, about whether she'll be able to turn her life I, around. No, no, I'll disagree on that. Well, <laughs> I'll I'm... disagree. No, no, no. Series ten is very interesting about how the arcs work, but we'll put a pin in that and get there. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I've 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 realised something to, actually just today thinking of what we're going to talk about, and and there's a there's a very funny thing about series ten, and I don't think it's all about the monks. I don't think the monks are to blame, because all the arcs in series ten culminate in episode eight, and in episode eight, uh, sorry, in episode nine on, you've got to pick up a new arc, which is the one you've just said, Missy, because. Missy doesn't, you know, you've got this arc of what's in the box that while you've got a good idea, you get a good idea around extremists, but it's finally nailed to the table in episode eight. And that's the oh, end yes, of but... the arc. And then the new arc starts. And part of my problem with series 10 is the last, you know, all your progression like uh, for things like Bill's development, etc., actually finds a conclusion and a climax in The Lie of the Land. And you go into the Empress of Mars and Eaters of Light needing something to increase the tension and increase the impetus. And and there's a really, really funny disconnect between episodes eight and nine. Well, I... Well, they've gone from a big story and another big story and a big two-parter to a... Because Empress of Mars is, is, a, is a small story by comparison. It's, it's not connected to anything. It's just the familiar ice warriors have come back. It is a bit of a disconnect because you've gone from these huge, this huge world-ending problem... Uh, you know the human race is going to be subjugated to it to to aliens, and then that's all just solved, and then they go to straight to Victorian well, soldiers. Well, not only that, but you've got the, it's it's a four episode increase of tension, slap bang in the middle third of the season with the Doctor being blind, and that goes on for three episodes. Then you've got the monks, and that goes on for three episodes. Bill's face the Raven moment in Lie of the Land could be seen as the the penultimate point of her story. And now, uh, you, and now we know all about Missy, and that she's in the vault, and and it, we've revealed again. what's in the vault. So, so episode eight is like a season close. And, well, and I, I don't think it quite is because Missy's story starts in episode six, where she has to make a promise to try and be good, and then in episode eight, we see the we see the first instance of her trying to be good. I think my theory on series ten is that Stephen Moffat decides that he's going to tell two stories, one being a sci-fi story, which climaxes with the monks. And I said this on our podcast about the lie of the land. Effectively, he's doing a series with two climaxes, with two finales. The first oh, one yes. is the monks, where that gets to the end of the sci-fi story, but that overlaps with the character story, which is the one he usually wants to tell, which starts in Extremis and finishes in The Doctor Falls. Yeah, but I would argue that Okay, it's it's may start in extremes, but it's not nowhere in the pyramid at the end of the world. 
and then you've, it jumps to the lie of the land, and then in Empress of Mars, Eaters of Light, it's dealt with in epilogues. It's coders to a story. It's not part of those stories. Well, yeah, but that's how Series 6 functioned, where you'd have the Stephen Moffat stories telling the arc and the other ones in between just referring to it ever so lightly. I think that that's how Doctor Who works, though, isn't it? I mean, it's not a story that's heavily serialised. The arcs are uh, an added extra, and things like Empress of Mars and, and Keepers of Light are just you know, standard, solid Doctor Who stories. In Good fact, stories. Yeah, I think Keepers of Light would, would have benefited from not having the Missy thing at the end, uh, which is clearly just written by Moffat rather than uh, yeah. Rona Munro. Um, mm. Because the arc, and Moffat himself decides this, I think, midway during his run, that, that um, season seven you know, has a change of companions and things, but it couldn't be said to have a sort of coherent arc. And he very definitely says in publicity before season seven comes out that he's doing a series of standalone movies. And, and you know, uh, at the very beginning, I think we have, we have those terrible um, individual title sequences with the sort of mm. horribly, um, uh, you know, <laughs> the logo with the Dalek bumps or the scales yeah, or whatever yeah. on it. Yeah. He's very deliberately decided to do it that way. And it's partly because one of the things that that Moffat does is he reacts against what he's previously done. So, so he reacts against season six, which gets very complicated, I think, um, by doing season seven, which doesn't really have arcs at all, he he reacts against you know his Charlie and the Chocolate Factory kind of interpretation of the TARDIS by um, having um, you know a much more sort of sombre sci-fi take on the TARDIS. After that, mm. he he in season seven he says two parters are terrible. The second part always rates much worse than the first part, and then. Uh, you know, two seasons later, he goes on to do a season that's all two-parters. Um, you know, it, it, he he's he's kind of making it up as he goes along a little bit and learning as he goes along. But I, you know, like the show doesn't need to have an arc. And the one series that no one's mentioned is the one that I think has the strongest arc, although I think he drops the ball at the end, which is season eight, yes. where the arc is about... Clara being in this sort of triangle with Danny and the Doctor mm-hmm. and yeah. trying to balance her relationships between them. And that works so incredibly well because Moffat cut his teeth as a writer of romantic comedy. Like that Press Gang is like an office sort of moonlighting style comedy romance and it's wonderful i mean it's one of my favorite sort of tv programs ever <laughs> and those scenes remember how moffat gets lots of co-writing credits in season eight and it's almost always because he's writing the hilarious rom-com stuff between um clara and danny uh and then letting the story sort of get on with itself uh, you know, apart from that, like Mummy on the Orient Express, you know, where she's ringing Danny, but basically the story plays out as it would have if that hadn't been happening. And I love that arc. I think I don't like what happens to Danny at the end, and I'm not a massive fan of the final episode. Um, but I love, you know, I think the season eight arc, precisely because it's got nothing to do with science fiction at all, uh, is really great. I, I do love the I, I do love the seasons where where he does explore, like you guys said before, the relationships between the Doctor and his companion. Like when the, there's a season where he um, he dips in and out of Amy and Rory's lives, and their and their lives move on in between the 
the times that he sees them. And then, like you say, in season eight, you've got the caretaker and time heist and, and all those ones where it's about Clara trying to have a life outside, but still dipping in and out of um, flying around with the doctor. And when he does those small, not necessarily small, I keep saying small stories. This is what I'm obsessed with. Uh, he does these, um, <laughs> these, well, these relationship stories. You know, there's always a, like in the caretaker, there's always a, a monster story and he's going to save the school from something or the world from something. But the episode's not really about that. It's about the relationship with, uh, you know, the doctor and Clara or the doctor and Amy. I think he's really, really good at those. You're right. He, he does have, he's got lots of co-writing credits in that season. Well, that's the I question do... then. Oh, well, for, go no, on. No, no, I was going to say, the... I do apologize. I did drag the conversation to the wrong end and um yeah sorry about that i haven't meant to do that um well i'm going to ask do, the question I, I, no, then I, yes please sorry. do okay well i'll ask daniel first should doctor who be about the relationship or should the relationship be in the background more because stephen moffat obviously has brought the relationships into the foreground more was that the right thing to do or not well i mean uh, from day one of the new series new, uh, the new series with uh, with rose he brought the you know the companion becomes a more more fleshed out person she's got family she's got a life does she want to leave it does she automatically want to leave it and you get to meet all these people in their lives i'm not a huge rose fan but it was a really good idea i think it was a great idea and then i think moffat sort of extended and built on that and he's really brought you into their world you get to see how they live when he's not when the doctor's not around uh you know i i love sci-fi i'm a sci-fi nerd but i i do love these stories where you get a little deeper. It's not just a, you know, a lot of the companions in the old, in the classic series, they're just sort of, um, they're, they're quite thin. You know, I love them, but a lot of them are just, um, uh, just lines on a page, you know, and these ones are, they're a little more fleshed out. I think it should be more about not just, you know, obviously not just about the doctor and his, and a girl he's picked up, but like, uh, uh, it is, you know, it's more, you feel it more when, when you, when you're invested in these companions, it means more when they, when they, when they, when they leave or when they're taken away, you know, it means more. I think it's important. Nathan? Oh, I absolutely agree. I think um, that you couldn't do a television program in the 21st century that was as uninterested in the characters as even some really great Doctor Who is. I contend, you know, that like Sarah Jane Smith, who I just think is superb, is essentially a performance by Liz Sladen. And, you know, I can't believe in her as a person at all like when we were doing our flight through the philip hinchcliffe era i was constantly going why the hell is why? she getting back why does she stay why does man? she stay yeah like um and some you know sometimes i think moffat drops the ball on that there are some terrible things that happen to amy and yeah. i think the unforgivable one is where she's cradling her baby and it just dissolves into a pile of sick in her arms i don't know why she doesn't just smack the doctor in the face and never see him again after she's been put through that um but the relationships are what makes it matter. You know, if, if people are being threatened by Daleks or Cybermen or, um, you know, cubes or, or whatever, <laughs> um, we need to know who those people are and care about them for it to matter at all, I think, in modern television. And uh, so I think it's absolutely the right decision. And some of my favourite scenes in both the RTD era and the Moffat era are scenes that are just about the characters and aren't about some ridiculous sci-fi threat dreamed up by Bob Holmes sometime in the uh, early 1970s. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Bill only gets a season and you, and you, you definitely 
you know, what happens to her is really, truly just abominable. It's really horrible. And you, I, you know, you, you, you do care about it. Even, even Nardole, you only get him for a season, but you, um, you, you know, you get to know him a little bit. Or at least he makes you laugh enough times that you, you care about him. Yeah, 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 and Moffat's careful yeah. to give him a bit of a hero moment at the end. You sure. know, like he doesn't just sort of disappear. He doesn't go off to Sir Charles Grover's, you <laughs> know, country estate and never get heard of again. Yeah, yeah. He gets to go and gets to do something doctorish, you know, to stand up and and save people and do something heroic. And you know, the old series threw so many companions yeah. away. Mm, mm, um, mm. And I think that the new series has done a great job of that. I never really understood the criticism that it was all about characters and people and emotions in the new series and why couldn't there be more robots well, in that's space what, corridors? Yeah, that's what, that's what stories and, te- and drama are supposed to be. It's, it is all about characters. It's, it's about writing and story. And I love explosions and lasers as much as the next sci-fi fan, but um, you've got to base it. You have to base it on, on strong characters and strong relationships. I think, just, yeah. Very right, David, you've been very quiet. Yeah, very quiet. Oh, no, I, I'm to just To bring you that... back on point, <laughs> do you think no, no, Doctor Who should I, be about I, the I've gun? been quiet because I've been agreeing. It's, it's uh, you know, you've got to have the character relationships. It's a facet of modern TV. And it's... Uh, the, the point I get worried about, though, is people talk like you have one or the other. Sure. You either have strong characters or you have an interesting sci-fi story or what have you. You can have both. And yeah, when Moffat shines, he's done stories like The Girl in the Fireplace, classic example. Interesting science fiction concept. F- devastating you know, character story. Um, we were talking before about The Girl Who Waited. Again, timey-wimey, spot-on, heartbreaking character stuff. I think They're what you're seeing there, though... Exclusive. Yeah, but what you're seeing there, the the, the, the sort of the, the the point I'm trying to make is when you had Russell T. Davis, the sci-fi story was the Daleks, and the relationship between the Doctor and the Companion was kind of a separate thing through which you experienced the sci-fi story. Mm. But in Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who, the sci-fi story is the Companion. You know, in um, <laughs> the Girl Who Waited, the sci-fi story is what happens to Amy. It's not. I, I no, I I disagree. I, I, I'm. I, I'm not sure you can you can clump the the two eras apart that easily. I mean, if you look at Blink, the the, the sci-fi story is is definitely about these these time traveling um, angels that will affect people who the Doctor barely knows. No, it's about Sally and uh, and her getting to um, fall in love with Lawrence. Do you know what I mean? Like that's a classic <laughs> oh, yeah, story but, but, that what, is what, 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 a rom com. She comes across him naked. You know, in, and you care about uh, them because you, know, you like, care about them because they're well written and they they're well fleshed out. Well acted. Yes. Oh no, I, I agree. But but it it works within a story with 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 these monsters who became instant classics. Then they're not. One or the other, they're both. Yeah, then they're not, oh, mutually, yeah, but... not mutually exclusive. Yeah, no, you won't. You won't. Exactly, yes. Yeah. But I, the, the, I, the, I, the, the distinction I'm making is that <laughs> at, the end of, at the end of Series 9, the story has been about the hybrid, and it turns out the hybrid is not, you know, Davros and the Emperor Dalek, and it's not the Cyber Leader and the Queen of the Weeping Angels. The hybrid is the Doctor and Clara. It turns out the yeah. Ark... Uh, the sci-fi aspect of the arc has been about the the main characters. JR, we're trying to have an I, I, argument I, here, and you're making it really difficult. 
<laughs> yeah, <you are>. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but uh, don't. Uh, the problem with the hybrid is it's it, the, the, that's of all the plot arcs, that's the least developed and the least con- sort of making any sense. Oh, I think me. it makes perfect sense. But uh, I think uh, can I can I just put a, 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 a an idea on the table and, and feel free to edit it out. Go ahead. We're both watching it from <laughs> complete, and this has come from Anthony Bourdain, the cook, one of his books. But there are two perspectives of looking at it. One, you're looking at it as an artist, and I suspect that's what you're doing. I'm not trying to force anything on you. Where you're looking at the art of it, yeah. and I'm looking at it as a craftsman and looking at the craft of it. And you can both appreciate it for completely different reasons. And it's well, all okay. about the perspective of how you put it together. So I'm not trying to say you're wrong. I'm just saying that doesn't work for me. I look at it differently. Oh, yes, but I'm trying to make an objective point about what Stephen Moffat does. In the classic series, the stories were about what the Daleks were up to, about whoever else. Yeah. And as Nathan says, the characters of the Doctor and the Companion are ciphers. They go in there, they find out what the problem is, they sort the problem out, but the story is about the problem. In Russell T. Davies, you get a lot more stuff about the Companion and her relationship with the Doctor, but those stories are told in parallel to the story about how the Cybermen have fallen through the void. And at the end of the series, you know, it turns out that the that the main thrust of the series has been about the Daleks and the Cybermen invading Earth through this void. And then in series three, it's about how the Master is yeah, taken over the Earth by pretending sure. to be the Prime Minister. When you get to Stephen That's when Moffat... I checked out. All right. When you get to Stephen Moffat... No, David, let me say this. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I've got to... But when you get to Stephen Moffat, it turns out that the arc was about the TARDIS exploding. And in the second year, it turns out that the arc was about the fact that River Song is the Doctor's daughter. And then you get to the year where it turns out that the arc is about Danny Pink being turned into a Cyberman or that Clara is the hybrid. All of a sudden... The th- the, all of a sudden, it's not about the relationship between the characters as they experience somebody else's story, but it's about the relationships with the characters as they experience their own story. That's a distinction mm. that Stephen well, Moffat no, uh, has brought to Doctor Who that didn't exist before. No, I disagree. Okay, Bad Wolf was Rose. Rose was the Bad Wolf. Well, Bad Wolf Doomsday, was... The, the Doomsday, the alternative universe Cybermen come from a universe... Where Rose's father still lives, and that's well, that's that Rose experiencing those things. But the story in that first series is the Daleks and what they're up to, and the story in the second series is the Cybermen and what they're up to. And Rose experiences that, and she has a part to play in that. But she is not the ultimate destination of that story in the same Probably. way as Clara is in series nine. No, I, just, I, I, I see Rose being the bad wolf. It's not being too dissimilar from Clara in series nine. Sorry, that's just how I see it. Mm, uh, sure. I, I, I don't. You know, I'm not. I'm not saying there isn't a distinction. I'm just not believing it's as clear cut and marked, particularly. It, but you know, sure. everyone brings their own thing to the yeah, show. Yeah, this is true. It's, I, it's, I personally think almost all of the arcs are crap. So that's just that's. <laughs> well, actually, actually, let's be honest. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. I do like you... I like the idea of the crack in the wall. It's quite it's quite it's just scary for kids and things. It's it's a good idea and I like the I like the arc about Clara's life and her trying to get a relationship going and that sort of stuff. But most of the time 
I was just sort of, my head was spinning and I was like, this is just, just write the story, write a good story. If the art's good, it's good. Never mind. But if it's not, it doesn't matter. But, but, but in practice, season seven, which tries to go arcless, is, is <laughs> actually his most forgettable season. It is really quite forgettable, yeah. yeah I like the, I like the, uh, the town. What was it? Well, the town I, called? I, I, the, town the, called the start something? of season seven, sorry. What's, sorry. The one with the, what's the one with the robot sheriff? Help me out. Tackle Mercy. Sher- robots like of Sherwood. I've got uh, Robots <laughs> of Sherwood. Robots of Sherwood is well played, good. sir. Well played. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sorry, Daniel. Sherwood, Go on. That's all right. Robots of Sherwood was, I think it was pretty bad, but I really enjoyed it. It was just a good figure. It was good. I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. It was pretty objectively not amazing. But does then, does whether the arc is fulfilling... Does that affect your enjoyment of everything? Is that Not vitally important to your enjoy, enjoyment no, of the no. series? No way. It it can do in hindsight for me, uh, but that is how I work. And I freely admit it doesn't have to be the same for everyone. There I, are things which irk me about how some acts have gone together. Um, but that uh, it only irks me in the sense of thinking back on the arc. I don't think... My any issues I have with the end of series seven are going to take away from what I thought about Hyde. Sure. Or uh, conv- conv- again, those one-off stories that that I think you were talking, Nathan, about as being the ones you actually watch for stand alone, regardless of the arc. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I'm going to go on to say that I'm a huge RTD fan, and you can see that the. Um, Bad Wolf arc is not really an arc, and it is just them seeding some words in there yeah. for a reveal oh, yes. at the end. There's no yes. real arc, and they don't. They're they're making it up as they go along. They're doing this in the dark. It's no Doctor, one has watched any Doctor, Doctor Who. They're learning how to do an arc for the first time, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yes, but yes. I love that season. Mm. I think it's fantastic, mm. and the arc. Who yeah. cares? You yeah. know, and and I think that. That it's not Battlestar Galactica, you know, <laughs> it's it's not a heavy heavily serialized program, and and it needs it's it has to tread a line between two sort of yeah. perils, and I think you know at times in the classic series you felt like the whole show had rebooted every four episodes and no one remembered what happened mm. last week. Yeah, you know, exactly. we never ever mm. refer to things again, and so things don't have a com- cumulative effect on the characters. And even you know the Hinchcliffe era, which people you know rightly look back on as one of the classic series high points has is bad in that respect you know the sarah gets really no character development to speak mm. of at all and can't remember anything it's such a shock remember in pyramids of mars where she refers back to the city of the exons and you kind of go wow she still remembers that why does that <laughs> never come up you're right um, there's almost nothing to so- link those 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 stories together back then i mean and often when they did try and make a series arc it was terrible like trial the time lord even the and the arc parts of key to time were they were pretty awful and so well again key to time what, is such so not an arc because it's just yeah, five it's just stories a, yeah, it's a to be together yeah, 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 yeah you know it's, it's just giving the, the doctor something to do rather than turn up in places for no reason um and then you know it leads to a sort of very terrible story uh, at, at the end and a, a lot of what the arcs are really just doing 
is seeding the big giant season Story finale the end. so that it yeah. doesn't mm. come out of nowhere. Mm. Um, yeah, and that and, is a lot easier all... to do with... Oh, sorry. Go on. That's a lot well, easier I'm to saying... do over 12 episodes rather than 24 or <laughs> whatever an old season used to be. Yeah, but they just weren't interested in doing that back then. Mm -hmm. Like, they just, you know, that wasn't what the show was about. They weren't very good at it either, to be honest. Well, it's not how TV was made. It's it's, it's an invention of things like Joss Whedon and Buffy and and an American format. You get get Star Trek The Next Generation and things like that. Well, Star Trek The Next Generation doesnn't do that either. No one really remembers what happened last week. That's true. But uh, during the Peter Davison era... We're referring back to previous stories and there's an ongoing thing. It's just poorly done, that's all. Um, yes, it's only an the, invention of those sci-fi series if sci-fi is all you watch. The rest of storytelling yeah. has been doing it yeah, since that, storytelling right. began. Yeah, exactly. oh, well, Star Trek The Next Generation was quite episodic. You have the world that follows it all the way through. It's only really when you get to Voyager of Deep Space Nine, which uh, where you get a lot more like surprising amounts of story arc over a season, and you're kind of shocked by it when it happens, because... People remember things, and it's lovely. It's lovely to have um, a little bit of an arc in modern Doctor Who. It's nice to to have that, that familiarity. Um, people like to look, back, you know, remember back to the start of the season. They love that stuff. People love self referencing, and it's nice. To, it's nice to have story arcs, but in the end, they shouldn't. They shouldn't really matter. What matter? What should matter is well written stories that are well made. That sounds so boring. It's so boring to say, but the arcs, yeah, but, the arcs but, don't matter. But sh- Surely the arc, how the arc ties together is part of a well-written overall story. But so many times in, in like seasons, I don't know, six, five and six and seven, it's just like a two, it's like a 20 second thing at the end of the episode. They're like, oh, remember, oh, oh, no, hey, no, no. remember uh, Amy's pregnant. Yeah. Don't forget. Like, it's just a tiny you know, thing. And that's what I was, that, that's what I was getting at before with things being covered in lines later. Sorry. I, I, oh, right. Yeah. It's, I, it's only, yeah. it's only, it's small and sometimes it's quite clumsy. I like that it's there. But it's not the be all and end all for me. But most of the time, they're a bit crap. No, I agree. <laughs> I, I think it's, and, and that's what, yeah, the, the, the point of arguing over it is a first world problem and the most first world, <laughs> first world problems. Oh, and, and it's just something I've, I've sort of come to the realization of after being far too wound up about these things. And I do apologize if I start ranting because. Unfortunately, that's my nature. I'm trying to improve myself. This is where you're supposed to do it. It's, we're, we're here for you. It's cheap therapy. It's, I, I, I owe JR's going to send me a bill at the end of the month. <laughs> Damn right. Well, yeah, I, for me, yes, I sort of kind of agree. And, well, the, I suppose the question is then, in terms of how much arc you get in those stories... Because one of the other things that's going on, obviously, is that there's a character story as well. And right from series one, you do get to see the development with Rose as she meets Adam and as she meets Captain Jack. And I'm not entirely sure Ross T. Davis did an absolutely brilliant job of that. Because there were times where it almost felt like, well, who's Rose going to fall for this week? (laughs) And then you even bring in Mickey in the penultimate story to bring it back to that. But he is telling a story about the relationship between those two characters. And in the end... I suppose in a sort of moonlighting kind of way, Rose does end up with the Doctor, as it were. <laughs> and then he magically transforms into the guy who looks just exactly like what she must always probably have wanted all the time. Does the... I... Uh, <laughs> the bits... I'm Go sorry, on, I'm, I'm naughty. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm really bad at this. Um, but the thing with Rose is you have that development and that whole talk at the end of 
Bad Wolf or near the end of Bad Wolf about the better way of living your life. And that is also a theme through Russell T. Davis's stuff. And especially with things like Donna and um, Arthur's Long Walk, you know, there, there is the relationship of, with the being of the Doctor and how that improves you, not essentially your relationship with the Doctor. Oh, yeah, but then Russell T. Davis, I, I agree, but I think Stephen Moffat does that better because he, mm. Stephen Moffat has They're a very, very similar... Yeah. I don't know, I think Stephen Moffat has a very similar thing about the characters improve who they are through their experiences with the Doctor, but unlike Russell T. Davis, who tears that away at the end, most notably with Donna, where he sends her right mm. back to square one. I hate that. Where she oh, yeah. goes back to being the person she was before she met the Doctor. It's and he quite, kind of he, does it a bit with Rose yeah, too. quite cruel. But that it's becomes cruel. the tragedy of Donna. Oh, that becomes the true heartbreaking thing about Donna is you cease to be this wonderful person you've become. But it's just robbing yes, someone, it's robbing someone of years of yeah. their life. It just seems cruel it's, and arbitrary, I think. That's just yeah, he, he's, he's robbing her of her development, whereas Stephen Moffat allows the characters to keep their development and gives them agency in how they leave the Doctor, but the tragedy is that they must leave the Doctor, and so you manage to balance the dark, you know, the, 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 the sadness of them having to split up with the Doctor while giving them a positive way to end by being a part of their own ending and by allowing them to keep their development. So, Jay, you think they do it different, differently, but you prefer the way Moffat does it? Well, I do. I like well, both. That's I right. think Moffat has taken what Russell T... For me, I think Moffat's taken what Russell T. Davis did and ironed out the kinks. <laughs> I think... In a way. Uh, yeah, no, no, I think there's a genuine problem with the new series and with the series ever since the Doctor got control of the TARDIS is why does he leave these people behind? And, yeah. you know, the show attempts to address it in School Reunion but not very successfully. Oh, and yeah. you are you do have a problem where you have Rose saying, I'm going to travel with the Doctor forever, or, you know, Amy saying something similar as well. Um, and you have to go to great lengths to kind of get rid of them when their it's contracts a... are up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just to butt in for a second, it's a double yeah, issue. Because nowadays you can't have somebody joining, joining the Doctor on his travels without them proving that they're worthy of being with him, <laughs> which makes it even more difficult it, to get rid of them at the end. And it does you know seem I mean? more, more likely that they'll come to harm. Like, the straight from the start, you've got Rose's mum saying, is she going to die? Straight up, is she just going to die? And yeah. you can't answer it. And then that comes up quite a few times in the, in the new series. And they just sort of hammer it home that it's much more likely that a companion's going to die, whereas in the old series, it's almost unthinkable. It only happened once or twice, and only mm. people we didn't really care about, to be honest. Well, it's actually, it's actually under Moffat's tenure. You're talking about the agency of leaving, but but okay, Amy and Rory died of old age. Um, I know I don't want to open the can of worms with um, with well, know, Amy running chose. into crows, but. Rory but, gets but, taken away from Amy and she gets a choice mm, between staying chooses. with the Doctor and going back for yeah. Rory and she okay, makes the enough. choice. Yep. Okay, yeah, no, yeah. Fair, fair point, yes. You go, girl. And then the other two virtually get to become the Doctor. I mean, there's some disaster that's out of their control that happens, uh, you know, but essentially both Clara and Bill end up as a result of circumstances going off and travelling the universe on their own. You know, I think that's... With, with, yeah, with, with mystery girls, to turn them into the shows, doctor. Yeah. Mm. 
That's exciting. No, no, I, I think agree. That's a great that's, ending. That's, yeah. I'm not too sure. Well, if, the, your mileage may vary on how great the ending is, but it's definitely a, a, a Moffatan theme. It's a much of, more uplifting ending. Stephen Moffat he did do also, it twice. I didn't even think of that. That is <laughs> Actually, I realised this afterwards, that if you watch those two episodes, Hellbent and uh, The Doctor Falls, without thinking about what's happening, it looks like exactly the same thing has <laughs> happened to both the companions. <laughs> but if you actually sat down and wrote down what happens to those two companions at the end of those two stories, you would not use any of the same sentences in one well, as with is the other. One, uh, just to be ridiculous, and I got this right, one is always on the verge of dying and gets a TARDIS to travel the universe, and one becomes an omnipotent water super being that can fly around the galaxy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? They're completely so different things. They just <laughs> look the same. <laughs> Well, even if you bring Rivers on into the equation, there is an idea that there is an element of death and there's a transcendence to another life, either living a life in a virtual world or you know, transcending to become a, a someone who doesn't breathe or a cyborg well, who doesn't breathe. Well, this is using sci-fi to address religion through allegory and metaphor, mm. isn't Whoa, it? That is and a, the same thing happens with podcast, Danny Pink. With Danny Pink, Danny at the Pink, end of Danny, Danny Pink's... Pink. Pardon? Can we not talk about Danny, Danny Pink in this, in this, in this, please? I don't want to talk at the end of, <laughs> at the end of Series 8, you get Danny Pink, first of all, becoming a reincarnated character, and then in the Christmas special, you get Danny Pink in Heaven. Uh, oh, no, sorry. It, you get Danny Pink in... Sorry, you get three Danny endings for Danny Pink. First of all, he's reincarnated as a Cyberman. Then he turns up in Heaven with um, Missy in the uh, Nethersphere. And then in the Christmas special, he's dead, but the characters remember him. So you've actually yeah. got both types of religion and the one which is completely non-religious... All different endings for Danny Pink that you get after he dies. Do you mean like the so when which, you die once which, and then which, you die, the last time you die is the last time someone says your name? Well, no, Danny Pink dies at the start of yeah. um, Dark Water, doesn't he? What, what I'm saying is... The, yeah. the, the quietest cab accident ever. <laughs> He's on the phone and you don't hear a thing. <laughs> no, but that's a that's a choice, that's though, because yeah, you don't want to reveal Oh, no, I, 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 I was being facetious, I apologise. I wasn't yeah. trying to uh, wind anyone up, I, sorry. I actually think that's the most upsetting death in Doctor Who's history. I think it's absolutely gutting. And I think it's well, nearly too big for the program to handle. Um, and it, But it's amazing. I think that episode's extraordinary. It's great. I, they yeah. really, but you're right. They really do make you like him. Like, and they know they're going to kill mm. him. They know when they, well, they're making you love him and making you laugh with him. And, you know, they make you, they make you like him and then they kill him fairly quickly. And it's and quietly, like you say, and it's uh, and you just I just felt a bit like I was a bit annoyed. I was a bit I felt a bit jiffed. <laughs> yeah, you're right. But it's really it was really good. It's a good arc. Well, they also do a good um, bait and switch because in listen, you're led to believe that there's a future there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you see what you think is Clara's great, 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 whatever grandchild with Danny uh, Pink, yeah, and it yeah. turns out not to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and, maybe it is. Who knows what she's up to now? She can travel well, in time, for God's sake. Well, no, she's she's not breathing, so one assume she's not going to have any kids. Yeah, <laughs> <just pretty laughs> you don't know how, but, well, that's well, how it works. Jeez, that's <laughs> a big one. I, I, 
do you think they've set them, do you think they've set both of these uh, companions up just so that they can pop back in every now and then? No, no, I think I, I think the Chibnall will abandon a, the. You think it's going to be a, a Chib reset? Chib, Chibnall's going to reset a lot. Yeah, I think so. Stephen Moffat at Christmas is going to send them both off to places where <laughs> we're not going to be able to see them from again. Well, even this season, I think felt he's going to. Uh, yeah. he's had, I think the Christmas one, we have one season with um, with uh, Bill, and yeah. um, one season with Nardo, and, and at the end of um, the finale, it felt like he was like, "Well, got to get rid of him, got to get rid of her." Ooh, yeah, yeah, cool. Get ready to reset. Yeah, it was every yeah. It was getting rid of everybody. Yeah. I think the Christmas special will send Clara back to Trap Street, for example. <laughs> I'm okay. not sure we'll see yep. Clara in the Christmas special, but I'm willing to to wait and be pleasantly surprised. Has it been announced? I thought it had been announced that she was that she was in it, or did I? Dream oh, okay, it? fair I enough. I, I I know Bill's in it, but I don't, don't. I didn't know if Clara was in it or not. I, I, I don't think there's been an official announcement, but I think there's been a number of unofficial announcements. I, I never, read, <laughs> okay. I, try, oh, I never read anything. I just wait. Uh, yeah, I'm an, I'm weird. I yeah. just wait to that. Yeah, I think somebody's taken something unconfirmed and confirmed it by accident in an unofficial place or something like that. Oh, okay. Oh, right, it's, it's my spoiler for the episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, it's one of those things that you're not going to get to Christmas without finding out, I guess. Probably not. No, that's something that's really d- d- thrown me for this season. More so, increasingly over time, but most more so with this season is is I would have liked to have found that out by myself. Thank you much, BBC Marketing, Marketing Department. Um, I, I did. I do hate. Uh, are we talking about the reveal of um, Joey yeah, Lucas? Yeah. I mean, I'm. Oh, the, the, the but we're we gonna, we gonna get into. Are we getting into that, or are we just gonna? Well, it's all the same. Up? It's all the same problem, really. Mm. It, it, I, this I, need to to preempt things being spoiled by t- spoiling it. Yeah, I could have waited for the. I yeah. definitely could have waited for the um, Christmas special. Didn't need a weird little trailer. The trailer is so quite cheesy. I mean, I'm thrilled to get Jody Whittaker, but um. The trailer itself, yeah, I'm not sure. I guess we could we could have just waited for the um, Christmas special, or had it been had it just be a press release, I would have been happy with a press release. <laughs> that would happy. never happen, though. I know. Yeah, well, no. it's so annoying that it's like has to be a whole produced little trailer thing. But that's just me. I'm just again. Um, that's that's how television works, and part yeah. of the experience is the experience of what gets revealed, what's in the trailer, what's in the next time trailer. You know, um. It, and and then how we get there, or, or sort of what happens. It's like the cliffhangers in classic Doctor Who. Oh, yeah. You don't just say, sure. oh, well, the Doctor's in peril, but we know he's going to get out of it because we've seen the show <laughs> before. It's it's kind of how, how we get there, and that is part of the experience. Like, I understand not wanting, you know, spoilers from whatever it is, Doctor Who set reports and stuff like that, but... You know, like the whole thing is a big event, and part of the event is the pre-publicity. I think that's all right, and certainly in this case, you know, I think it's I probably think the... yeah. I think in this case, it's worth picking up. Yeah, for sure. I don't, I don't know. The, the, the argument I'd have there's there's two things I'd, I'd say, and I know I've said so much today, tonight. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, is um, I don't you know it, it. I don't see what all the the. The, the hype is for seeing as we're not actually going to see her except for 30 seconds at Christmas and then her first episode's got to be at least a year away from now. I just, well, because... I just can't get enthused by the revelation. Wait, is this the, the first time now. Is this the first time they've done a reveal, a sta- like, a, like a standalone reveal? Is this the first time we've had one? Is it? No, it's the third yeah, one. No. They, Didn't they, they did it for Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi, yeah. Did they? Yeah. Oh, my God. They had a half-hour show for each of them. No, yeah. you... What? No, you oh, mean they like did, a little yeah. trail, a little TV thing. 
with Matt Gosh. Smith, they had a whole documentary which was um, part of the pre- confidentials, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah part of confidential, oh, which was right. pre-advertised oh, as just a half-hour show about the Doctors. But halfway through the half-hour show about the Doctors, they suddenly said, "And ah, this is going to be the next one." Right. Yeah, I'm I'm showing my my um my reluctance <laughs> to watch hours and hours of Doctor Who confidential. <laughs> the point is, if if they hadn't announced Jodie Whittaker now and had left it for another couple of weeks or a couple of months or whatever, or tried to leave it till Christmas, it would have come out. Mm. It's like um, when they were filming The Day of the Doctor, on the day before they were due to do location work with the Zygons, on the day before they were about to do that, they put out a press release saying the Zygons are going to be in this story. So instead of people finding out, when suddenly somebody suddenly posts a picture of a Zygon outside the castle walls in their Facebook feed, people actually find out from the BBC. And sure. that's why they've announced Jodie Whittaker now, because presumably oh. she was either just about to or just had gone into the studio to record the regeneration. And it was either the BBC tell you or you find out, you know, on <laughs> Facebook. some jerk with a phone, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, ironically, the, thing, the other thing with the, the announcement is because it was this whole mess up with six o'clock at Wimbledon and then it wasn't, I'd actually gone to someone's house to watch it on television and ended up watching it on... Yeah, him reading me out the press release and watching it on his phone because we'd missed it by 10 minutes. Oh. It was just a very funny, unfortunately slightly botched, and that's not nothing to do with Stephen Moffat or the production team. Well, that was I think it's to do with it, your it, time zone there. Yeah. It was weird. No, no, I, had, I, was in, I was in Ireland at the time. Well, it is... Oh, okay. yeah. I, David, I was lucky enough to it, be in um, the UK when it happened and... It came on after the after Wimbledon, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah but Wimbledon right. ended early. Well, David, they didn't oh, well, know that, know, but she was recording... No, no, no. no I, she, I, I, I it's Roger that, Federer, yes. man. He's he was straight sets. Right? Wasn't he straight sets? Well, he's a doctor who... He wanted to know. He was... <laughs> <laughs> but the point uh, is, it had to be that week because yeah, that you... was the week, presumably, she was uh, recording her bit, and that yeah, was going probably, to be the I'm most sure watched... Television yeah, event no, yeah. on Otherwise the BBC that week, and, so yeah, yeah they know, put it they put it in at a time when more people would be watching television than anything mm-hmm. else, and the one thing they didn't have control over was how long the match was going to be. That and is, I, that's true. And I uh, assume uh, that most people know how tennis works and would keep <laughs> a half an eye on the score and would say, "Oh, the match is in its final set. It's probably not going to go on much longer. Uh, We'd better get ready for this I was announcement." I was annoyed that I had to sit through uh, Roger Federer's victory yeah. speech. Was deeply yeah. My, my only response was, "I'm a Doctor Who fan. The only time I do sport is when I run away." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I, I fully appreciate where you're getting at, Jr. And I'm not trying to. But the point I'm trying to make is it's so far in advance, I can't get motivated over it because it's... It's, it's so far away. It's, it's too far in the future. Sure. The, the, well, the, you've got the three that's... seasons of Broadchurch to yeah, watch yeah. between <laughs> them. Oh, well, I, maybe I, one I mean, season I, I, of Broadchurch. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> yeah, I can recommend one season. Oh, and Attack but, the Block and two Centurions oh, films. Yeah. They always, the David, they always crazy. announce the Doctor a long time before we ever get to see them. They just have to <laughs> yeah. do it. Yeah, the, the other thing, though, is just on this announcement front, I knew Johnson was going to be in the, the, the episode. I didn't see Razor. And that I, I got it about as soon as he walked in and started talking to Missy. And that actually that actually still worked for me. I'm, I'm quite chuffed at that. 
I don't know what you guys no. were like. The Did moment that it? he smiled, I knew it was John Cena. Oh. The second that that character oh, smiled, man. I knew it was John Cena immediately. I'm sorry. And, um... yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> even, even, I, watched, I was watching it with my girlfriend, and as soon as he did the terrible accent, I was like, that's definitely not a normal, just regular character. <laughs> that's and it. Who it's else could possibly be John Cena doing oh, a terrible, had... terrible accent? I loved it. I, I had it. it. <laughs> It was great to watch him for the whole the whole episode. Yeah, yeah. That's John. Me, no, you're ridiculous, John Sim. It was great. I, <laughs> I had a terrible moment because he walked into he walked into screen in silhouette. If you remember, his very first <laughs> shot was in silhouette, and I looked at the silhouette and thought, "Oh, they've done the master with long hair." <laughs> and then, and then oh. when he walks into frame, and you're not supposed to think it's the master. I've already got this idea yeah. in my head that that character's the master. So yeah. then well, I'm he was looking so... to see if it's John Look, Sim. Part of the reason I loved having John Sim back, I would have loved having him back anyway. But part of the reason I loved having him back is because that that long haired character he was playing was so cheesy and so great. I loved every minute. Mm. It, was, it was really. <laughs> he fun. got yeah. He got a great chance to. This is one thing that Stephen Moffat does that he doesn't really get a lot of credit for. <laughs> He's always writing things for actors that they're going to really have a lot of fun playing. Yeah. Peter Capaldi. So many people have said, oh, Peter Capaldi would have made a great Doctor, but he's been let down by the scripts. And I'm thinking, no, as an actor, you look at a script for something like Heaven Sent or even Dark Water and Death in Heaven and all the yeah. st stuff your character's going through in those episodes... And you're thinking, no, this actor is going to absolutely adore this script because it gives him so much to do. You know, so much range and variety. If we're going to get onto that Capaldi. end of Zygon inversion, in Zygon yeah. inversion, he mm. gets like that ten-minute speech. It's spectacular. Yes. I think yeah. he was he was uh, Capaldi was magnetic for every second of every season he had, regardless. Mm. I mean, yeah, some of the writing wasn't wasn't stellar, um, but he really every time he was on the screen, you know, he couldn't help. He was amazing. I thought he was fantastic. What? I think that one of Moffat's, uh, you know, one of the things that we can look back and remember is that he cast two incredible yeah. doctors, like yeah. mm, two amazing, definitely. vastly different actors as the doctor. And you've got someone sort of really skilled and disciplined in Capaldi and someone incredibly instinctive and, and magnetic in Matt Smith. Um, you know, I love the RTD era, but uh, David Tennant and... You know, when I go back and watch it, David Tennant's always better than I remember. Sure. But, you know, it's a much more mannered uh, performance, as you said before. I think, Daniel, you found him sort of starting to overact horribly and, uh, you know, like anyone could be forgiven I, for thinking that. I love, he's a great actor. Just some of the stuff, yeah, it was a lot of wacky stuff going on. It was a, bit, a little bit too much for Yeah. Me. Yeah. Yeah, but certainly both Smith and Capaldi have been incredible. Yeah, just from moment, from moment from the first scene. Sorry, I'm sorry. From the first scene of no, no, Dallas, please go on. I was just so I heard it was Matt Smith. I was like, cool. I haven't heard anything about this guy. I think I was probably quite pessimistic. I thought I'm sure it's going to be crap. I'll watch it anyway. From the first <laughs> from the first few minutes when he's uh, flying, you know, holding onto the TARDIS, it, it, the, the film grade was incredible. The colors were brilliant. It was it looked amazing. Matt Smith looked great, and he was funny immediately. And Mm. I was just, uh, I thought, I'll just trust, uh, I was so shocked by how great it was, I thought, I'll trust this for, you know, for as long as I can watch it, for, you know, the next few seasons, and that first episode, it's such a great reboot, it goes straight back to Doctor Who, like, he's in a, in a, in a little kid's lounge, uh, kitchen, he's conspiring with a child, uh, you know, parents are asleep, uh, it's just him and a kid, they're having a great time, it was just, it was brilliant, from, from moment one, I was sold, and there's definitely dips along the way, but... 
yeah. Well, they both. Another thing that they both have in common is they're actually both really brilliant with children, aren't they? And Matt Smith gets that right at the start, mm. and I think that's the straight away that cements him. Yeah, straight away mm. is, is the way he talks to the child. And they're both so conspiratorial. Like um, Capaldi's the same. He's you know, he, it's you and him. Well, it's him and the companion, but you know, yeah, you're in yeah. it together, and you know, you trust him, and he's uh, he's he's winking at you and nudging you, and you you know, it's a, it's you know, it's correct. You, you said before, JR, with uh, one thing that Stephen Moffat does is he always fights against his previous form. Oh, and yeah, that's think... what Nathan was talking about, yeah. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm confuddling everyone. As you said, the, the, uh, Matt Smith hit the ground running and his character was almost fully formed as this, this madman in the box. Would you think one of the, the issues with people saying that Capaldi was potentially sort of not quite written right was... His first episodes, it's a very subdued performance. You have that, that death scene in, with the clockwork man in deep breath, and it takes a while for his doctor, the doctor's prickles to wear off. It's a wonderful well, acting. They, yeah. I like it. They're they're taking, taking, I think there's, taking a bit of a chance. A deliber- <laughs> yeah, I think they're taking a bit of a chance, and it was... I think I remember seeing Capaldi on TV talking about we're going to bring it back to sort of an older doctor, maybe a bit grumpier, not so much a young, handsome dude who's like happy all the time. And uh, it was a bit of a risk, and it didn't always pay off, and a lot of people didn't didn't like it. I, it wasn't amazing, but, I th- but you've got to take risks, and you've got to try and change things, and I think it was a good idea. I don't know if it worked that well, but I enjoyed it. I think Capaldi has proper development across mm. all three yeah. series, mm. whereas Matt Smith, like you say, I think one of the complaints about Matt yeah. Smith is that he turned into a caricature of himself because he didn't get <laughs> the development. That was the complaint. I yeah, wonder, started... uh, no, carry on. Sorry. There was a tweet by Gareth Roberts talking about the caretaker where he and he's a bit of a professional curmudgeon these days. And yeah. so, <laughs> you know, like I'm not sure how much I'm willing to take this. But he said that there was frantic backpedaling by the time caretaker came along because they thought the doctor had been too um like a little bit too grumpy and unsympathetic. Um and that is something that I don't, you know, like Matt Smith is grumpy and he's unsympathetic as well. And it is something that Moffat does. He's, you know, he's someone who's very aware. I mean, think about coupling and all of the things that it says oh, about what men and women are like God. in a very kind of essentialist sort of way. But he does see men as in some ways incompetent in relationships um, and needing to be rescued by women and like, I don't know, like I'm not, you know, down with that necessarily, but you do see elements of that in both of his doctors. You I know. think, I, I was just going to say, I think the thing with somebody like Peter Capaldi is you probably write a curmudgeonly doctor expecting the performance to sort of offset that. And then, because the writer's in London, hundreds of miles away from Cardiff, where they're making it, and he doesn't get to see what Peter Capaldi's actually doing with these lines until the rushes are sent back, and, you know, he's watching them on his computer. And probably, probably he wrote Peter Capaldi uh, 
expecting him to be lovable. Rather, come, to expecting be lovable. him to do something lovable yeah, with the curmudgeonliness, yeah. and then maybe Peter Capaldi got there and absolutely uh, I'm gonna go full them up. I'm going to go full yeah. <laughs> And uh, maybe that was the shock to the system that made them pull back a bit during the course of Series 8. I yeah, know. I think that that's entirely credible. I'm yeah. quite prepared not to take at face value uh, what Gareth <laughs> Roberts says about that. Um, but... <laughs> But, um, I mean, I do think that they do find new things for him to do and new ways for him to play it all Hmm. the time. And I think that his performance, I think you're right, JR, that his performance does change and develop um, as time goes on in a way that Matt Smith's doesn't. I think Matt Smith is is much more instinctive and much less thoughtful um, as a performance as a performer, yeah, yeah. which means that he's compelling. He's really fun to watch. And I think there are things that he does that are, you know, as good as things that Troughton does as the Doctor. Um, but I think Capaldi's performance is, is sort of more sophisticated and interesting. It does develop a little a little more. And, and he's so expressive and he's uh, so commanding. He does a lot more with his face than, you know, you know I mean, Matt, Matt Smith is very physical. He's running and jumping and laughing and, and uh, throwing things and running. He runs around the console all the time, throwing switches, and they're always flying through space and everything's working around. And Capaldi's a lot more, it's all in the face, you know? It's all in the, mm. Um, mm. Delivery, in the delivery. It's very I uh, mean, different, but amazing. Smith does have that big old face, though. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> when he does the sad <laughs> face. When he does the he sad face and he's expressive. like, conflicted face, and he's like, oh, what am I doing? What have I done? Yeah. <laughs> Crikey, it's <Right>. a chin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, guys, we could probably carry on for about another hour and a half, but we are going to have to wind this up because we've all got things to do and places to be, I suspect. So I'm going to throw you each one more question, and this is the most subjective question of the this day. This better not be favourite I... favourite Moffat story. <laughs> well, no, I wasn't going to. No, I wasn't going to make it joking, that I'll simple. That. I was going <laughs> to name a favourite Moffat story if you like. But the question is this: on balance, do you think? And this is entirely subjective. This is entirely your opinion. On the on balance, has Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who impressed you or disappointed you? Oh, I, I guess. Uh, go on, then, Daniel. Oh, yeah, you. Just from 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 straight away, uh, yeah. Well, I had just from the eleventh hour, which is maybe my favorite one, maybe my favorite Moffat. Just just straight away is immediately fun. Uh, uh, a little bit serious. A lot of, a lot of really a lot of great writing. Um, has it impressed me? Is that what you said? Yeah. Is it on balance? Well, have you enjoyed it more than you've not enjoyed it? Yeah, I think so. More more so than Tennant and and maybe Eccleston. Uh, there's been more more good than bad. If you're going to reduce it to zeros and ones, but both both doctors yeah. have been wonderful. I think they've been wonderfully written for. Obviously, not every single story, but you know, re- I really enjoyed how different they both were. Um, yeah. Yeah. I've enjoyed David them immensely, and it, uh, just there've just been a lot of Go on. sorry. Yeah. They've just been a lot of fun. Like I've had a, a lot more fun uh, with these two doctors than than the last. Right. Time. So go on then, David. On balance, Moffat, thumbs up, thumbs down. Oh, look! I don't think you can write off whole swathes of things. Sure. I, I, I probably the best way to answer your question is even when I've, when I've even when I've been disappo- disappointed, I've been impressed. Hmm. <laughs> Fair enough. Even when it's been, very, even when it's been terrible, we've still had a pretty good time. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and, and even when I've 
ripped things apart and been on podcasts and spoken mm -hmm. over everyone and yelled and screamed and ranted and raved, mm -hmm. I've been pulling apart these interesting things and playing with the Lego they make. And if I can't put them back together in a shape I like, I've spent a good this percentage of my life over this period enjoying the process of ripping it to bits. You know, <laughs> and in a good way. In a, you know, it's, it, it, it makes you think. And if you come out of the thinking process going, actually, I didn't like that because it's been a much more enjoyable exercise than trying to do that with neighbours or, uh, or, or, or anything else. So... You, you can't knock it. It's just when we're, because we're passionate about these things that we love. Yeah, yeah. When it's exciting, it's really exciting, and when it's a bit disappointing, it's really disappointing. And it's 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 Stephen Moffat's seasons are seasons of of extremes. And one of the funny things about season ten, and I described it with you and various correspondents, is it's a little bit Prozac-y. It's it's sort of one of the few seasons where you don't seem to have these to me big highs and big lows of oh, that was awesome I hate Forest of the Night that kind of thing yeah yeah it's, it's 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 always been a roller coaster and that's good all right Nathan then sad to see him go or glad to see the back of him well neither of those really <laughs> I think that <laughs> it's time I think that right he yeah. I think it's time but yeah. Yeah. I think that what he's done. He, he has been much, much more experimental and ambitious than his predecessor, um, you know, vastly more so. And there is a critique of Russell, which is that he just made the same season four times in a row. <laughs> and, um, you know, like, I, I would be lying if I thought that that, if I said that that was an unfair assessment of what he did. But what he did was immensely competent and really, you know, just terribly enjoyable whereas you can see you can see Moffat struggling at times to get the show made and n not quite sure what approach to take but that does mean that um he's he's left Doctor Who in a really really interesting place um he's taken it and in his, you know, six seasons or whatever, is it six seasons? Can it really be six seasons? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's written more Doctor Who, televised Doctor Who than anyone else, more than uh, Bob Holmes. Um, he He's done things that Doctor Who has never done before and has broadened its um, scope enormously and has, I think, really left it in a very good place. You know, it is time for him to go. Everything uh, has its time. But, mm. um, you know, we have to be grateful, I think, for what he's done during his time on the show. Well, fantastic. Well, thanks for joining me to talk about this, guys. <laughs> thanks for having us. <laughs> All the way on the other best. side of the world. I thought we were talking about William Hartnell. Um. Uh, well, before you go, do you want to just quickly tell the listener, um, you know, your podcasts and where to find them? Nathan, you go first. All right. So my uh, podcast is Flight Through Entirety. We are watching Doctor Who in order. Our most recently released episode, probably by the time of this, will be The Happiness Patrol. That's, that's running a little bit late at the time of recording. So we're nearing the very end of the old series. It's um, three of us or sometimes four 
um, sitting around a couch talking about Doctor Who, and you can find us at uh, flightthroughentirety.sexy, uh, mostly because <laughs> I have a really terrible habit of accumulating domain names, or <laughs> flightthroughentirety.com as well, if you want to be more sensible, uh, and at FTE Podcast on Twitter. Are you about to launch into the new series once you've finished with the classic? Well, I, I'm Are you guys going to do go new adventures? <laughs> no, we're not doing the new adventures. <laughs> um, <laughs> we are going to do the new series. We are going to take a break. I'm overseas uh, okay. for a few months, um, but we're hoping to launch uh, in the new year uh, with a sort of slightly new series of uh, Flight Through Entirety, but I won't say any more than that. Uh, fair enough. So, David, just for anybody who can't remember back an hour and a half to the start of the episode, but your podcast, where uh, it is and what I, it's about. We are beyond the sofa. It's myself and my friend Peter Adamson basically talking about whatever tickles our fancy at the moment. We've just come out of this uh, last season, so we're going to have a bit of a, a rethink as to what we're going to be doing next. We're on Facebook, iTunes, and as before, we're sofageddon at wordpress.com. And it's not specifically always Doctor Who. It's all sorts of other things as well, is it not? It is. We've had a 2000 AD episode sitting in the musket-finished bin for about no. six months. <laughs> um, again, we've, we've, we, we do a bit, we're a bit eclectic. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's more, mostly two fans who think, oh, we've both got microphones, let's just, when the season's not on, talk about what interests us. So, yeah. Uh, start with the Doctor Who and see if you actually like my mad ranting <laughs> dribbles <laughs> while Peter tries to rein me in. And, uh, yeah, go from there, if you wish to. And Daniel, for those who can't remember back as far as knock-knock, <laughs> what's your podcast and where is it found? Uh, well, I do I do New to Who with um, my friend Stephen and uh, Colin, and we... It, we sort of go through every once a month we review a Doctor Who episode that we think might be good for someone who's who's watched a lot of New Who but hasn't doesn't really know how to where to start with the classic series. Someone who's not touched the classic series and wants to know yeah, what's yeah. a good entry point. And so, I mean, that's really a thinly veiled reason for us to review and talk about episodes that we've loved. And we, we've uh, the three of us have been watching Doctor Who together for for quite a while, and we just like talking about it. I think and, and bullshitting. So, but you can find us. Um, <laughs> well, we're on Twitter, and we're on Twitter at uh, Who Podcast, and the same on Facebook and uh, com. Yeah. Right. Brilliant. Thank you again, then, guys. And uh, hopefully, our paths will cross again in the future. But if only through listening to your podcast myself. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having us. Delightful Thank to you be for here. having us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right, I'm not going to try and predict what's happening on the Blue Box podcast next week. Oh, yes, I am. I know what it is. We're going to get together and talk. Our listeners on Facebook have been voting for who their favourite doctors are. So given that, including Peter Cushing, there are 14 doctors, we're going to do a rundown (laughs) of the top 13 because we don't want to mention who came last. (laughs) That's very wise. Just in case it's any particular person. Don't make any enemies. Yeah. So next week we'll be uh, discussing who our listeners voted as their favourite doctors. But until then, I was JR. I was Dan. I was David. (laughs) And I was Nathan. We're going to edit that to sound Uh, much smoother. Oh, of course. (laughs) Not that you've said that, though. (laughs) I I, I was going to say, I was obnoxious. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't really have that much to say, so there you go. 
And Nathan didn't say tremendous or terrible or words beginning or with a T nearly as much as yeah. I was hoping he would. That's your catchphrase. I, I didn't pull out the word tiresome once. <laughs> no. I'm, I think I'm growing as a person. I, I, but we don't want you to grow as a person. We <laughs> like it when you describe things as tiresome. <laughs> <laughs> Until next week, we'll speak again soon.